Well, yeah, this is a fascinating and compelling passage. And even folks who know very little about Christianity have heard of some of the pictures and the symbols that we're talking about this morning. The beast, although we find out it's not just one beast, it's, it's two, one from the sea and one from the land. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a Godzilla movie, but nothing good comes from the sea, right? Godzilla comes up out of the sea to trample Tokyo. And you have the same sort of idea here. We could probably like name this sermon today like Godzilla comes out of the sea or something along those lines. And it's not a pretty picture either. It's a picture of some sort of force, of some sort, you know, it's, it's hard to define. It's given as a picture instead of a verbal description, like this is exactly what it is. We, we have an allegory. We have a symbol. It's like a beast that comes out of the sea and reigns and has dominion over the earth. And some people worship and profit by it, and some people who refuse to worship are crushed by it. And then there's a moment, as a matter of fact, in this passage, uh, right in the middle between the descriptions of the first and the second beast, where it it says, uh, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. And if anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. It's almost like a throwing up of the hands of, yep, this is going to be rough. This is going to be hard. But of course, these are the times that John speaks into in the book of Revelation. He's not speaking just, you know, abstractly. Oh man, I'm having trouble here. But he's speaking into something that the people in his audience would understand. He's speaking to them not just of circumstances that are are far away and, and you have to imagine. He's speaking of things that they're going through right at that moment in their lives. And we know it because we have the seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And they're almost all characterized by, you're doing some things well, here are some things that maybe you need to improve on, or you better stop doing, or you're not going to be part of the club anymore. And then there's always a sense of, and here's what you're suffering. Here's what you're suffering. Sometimes we lose touch with that, in a sense, because as much as we may complain about our lot in life, I think it's important for us to have the perspective to remember that, historically speaking, we have it better than almost anyone in human history. Uh, If you lived in Europe during the Middle Ages, you had a 50% chance of dying of the plague, for crying out loud. And we don't worry about that, do we? I mean, we, we had what we called the pandemic a few years ago, and a lot of people died, but it was not 50%. It might not have even been 1% or 2%. We live in a world where we're so insulated. Think about the thing that just, you know, think about Maui and the fire that swept through Lahaina. And these things feel like they're becoming more common, and yet how insulated are we? Even in California, where no one will insure us anymore because of the fire danger, we still don't expect to be mowed down by fire. We don't expect to be mowed down by invading armies. Think of what's happening in the Ukraine, or think of what's happening in Nigeria right now, where the government is overthrown or under threat, or a neighboring power has rolled in with tanks. And folks, especially in the United States, that has never happened in our history. At least not in the west part of the country. There was that whole civil war. 
But it's amazing how insulated we are. And so I think that sometimes, I think that's part of the reason why when we read these passages, they talk about the beast and they talk about these, these sufferings and these tribulations. We think, well, that's all about the future someday because we can't imagine it happening in our own world. Or if we can, it's be, you know, we think, well, we've got it so good now, so God must be talking about things getting a lot worse than they are. Then, of course, we also have folks who are saying, like, you know, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? We're, we're all, everything's getting worse day by day by day. And, folks, I, I just have to tell you, I don't think we're living in a historically interesting time in most ways. I think that, as we've been outlining, you know, we're not worried about dying about the plague tomorrow or something. We are complaining about real social ills and evils, and yet we're kind of blowing them out of proportion in other ways at the same time. I've shared many, many times, people always ask, Pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? And I say, yes, of course we are, because every day since Jesus rose from the dead is part of the last days. He's coming back any moment. It is the last days. But that doesn't mean that the powers of evil aren't at work in our society and around us. You know, I know we're all breathing this, you know, because things are bad in some ways, right? We are suffering in some ways, and things in some ways really are going to hell in a handbasket because they always have been. And they will be until Jesus comes back. Because he's the only one who has the wisdom to rule in such a way that we all are living blessed lives in every way. And this passage is not telling us about someday these things will happen, but instead saying this is the pattern of the way life in this world works. So let's talk about what the beasts reveal to us. The beast of the sea and the beast of the land. So we already said, nothing good comes out of the sea, right? And the people in the ancient world especially understood this. For example, Ephesus is one of the churches that was being written to here in the book of Revelation. One of the seven letters is to Ephesus. And Ephesus, they were, uh, Ephesus is in southwestern Turkey, along with the rest of the seven churches. And the things that came by land were the familiar things, Okay, those are the things, you know, it's, it's like your neighbors and, and all these things. But Ephesus is also on the sea. By the way, Ephesus is one of the most amazing archaeological sites you can visit today. And I encourage you, if you ever have the opportunity, to jump at it and take it. But Ephesus used to be by the sea. Now everything is silted up and it's uh, several miles away from the sea these days. But when the Romans came to Ephesus, you know how they came? By the sea. By the sea. So the beast coming from the sea would have represented to these churches receiving this letter invading armies and foreign powers and people who took away their liberty and made them live the Roman way instead. And the original audience of this book would have rightly identified the beast in their day, the beast of the sea, as Caesar, and especially as Nero. And I'll tell you why. Let's look at the the passage here. By the way, I'm going to miss 90% of the detail here because there just isn't, I mean, we'd have to spend months if we wanted to hit everything. But let me just give you a, a, a little bit here. Here in chapter 13, 
it's uh, first of all, we need to identify this beast with Daniel's prophecy, right? That's why we read out of Daniel this morning. Remember, there's this great beast. He's like munching everyone with his teeth. He's leaving destruction in his wake. And in the book of Daniel, that's actually the fourth beast that comes. And the description of the beast from the sea here in chapter 13 combines elements of all four of those beasts and says, yeah, Daniel's prophecy is probably originally referring, culminating in a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, who is part of one of the rulers of the Seleucid Empire to the north of uh, the north of Israel back in, I, I can't recall, I believe it's the second century BC, sometime around there. And Antiochus Epiphanes did terrible, terrible, terrible things to the Jewish people. It was an awful time. And now John's readapting that imagery and saying, well, you know, what, you, what the Jews experienced under Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe the fourth, you're going to experience only more so. It'll be like all those four beasts combined at the same time. And one of the heads, remember, he has ten heads. I'm sorry, ten horns and seven heads. With ten crowns on its horns, symbolizing his dominion and his rule. And then on each head, a blasphemous name. And blasphemy is taking away from God something that belongs to him to give it to something else, or in this case, to give it to yourself. And so the beast is claiming, I am your God, essentially. I am your ruler. If you want to worship somebody, you worship me. That's the significance of these blasphemous names. And then how does the beast get all of his uh, authority and his power? Well, it says the dragon from chapter 12. And if you remember from chapter 12, it says that the dragon is identified with Satan himself. It says Satan has given the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. And if you go back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, this is exactly what Satan offers Jesus in that third and final temptation. He says, I will give you all of this authority. I will give you all of these kingdoms if you will only worship me. And Jesus, of course, hero that he is, says, no. If I will gain authority and power, it will not be the way of the dragon, but it will be the way of the cross. And he does it, and he wins it, and he gives the lie to the dragon's offer in the first place. But here, the beast from the sea has accepted the dragon's offer of a throne and power and great authority. And then it says, here's how I know we're talking about Nero here. One of the heads of the beast, one of these seven heads, seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The Roman Empire, uh, at the end of Nero's reign, Nero, of course, probably went crazy and committed suicide. And at first, he started off doing all right as emperor, and then he kind of descended more and more into madness, and things got worse and worse. You remember the saying, fiddle away, Nero, because Nero supposedly, as Rome was on fire, did nothing about it because he wanted to rebuild Rome in the way he wanted it instead of the way it was in that day. Nero was the man, the Roman emperor, who used to take Christians. He didn't start by persecuting Christians. As a matter of fact, Nero may have been the emperor who set Paul free at the end of his Roman imprisonment, but something changed along during his reign, and near the end of his reign, Nero would light his gardens in his palace with the burning bodies of Christians. He was a bad guy. And in his madness, he commits suicide, and he has no heir. And then you have what's known to historians as the year of the four emperors. 
because there's a power vacuum. And so first, you know, one governor steps up and then, you know, someone bribes the Praetorian guard, the guard of Caesar, and they kill the emperor and the new emperor comes in and he can't hold on to power. And the third emperor takes over and he comes in and he can't hold on to power. And finally, Vespasian rules for 10 years. And at least politically, he did a pretty good job. But Vespasian, uh, do you know how he came to fame? He was the general who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. Josephus records it in his book, The Jew, uh, Wars of the Jews, or Jewish War. Uh, and Josephus lived through it. It's amazing. This is an eyewitness account. And then... Uh, Oh, I had all of this written down, so now i got to pick it up here. Uh, so Josephus was then captured by Vespasian, and this is what he said. Uh, actually, this is what it, it's recorded that he said, I think, through Tacitus and Suetonius, other Roman historians, as, as well as through Josephus' own words. It says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't include that quote. But uh, Josephus essentially says, Vespasian, you're the guy. I know that you know, Nero's on the throne uh, in Rome at this time when Vespasian finishes his conquest, but you're the real Caesar. And that's exactly how it turned out to be. Isn't it amazing how God's people somehow get wrapped up in all of this in the year of the four emperors? And Vespasian, uh, it says that uh, he, was the, uh, he minted coins during his reign that celebrated his destruction of Jerusalem. So here is the head that looked like it, that had been received the fatal wound. Nero kills himself, and it looks like the whole Roman Empire is about to fall apart. But the fatal wound had been healed by Vespasian's rule. And the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. There was a real sense that Rome's going to fall apart, and then Vespasian comes along, and now the Roman Empire is stronger than ever. And so the people say, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? There is nothing that can kill the political power of Rome. Let me tell you another thing. Uh, the number of the beast, 666. Right? This is, if you've ever seen a horror movie, I'm sure you've seen 666 somewhere. Right? No one really understands what it's about, but we all agree it's probably bad. The most direct way of understanding what 666 stands for is to transliterate, which means to take the letters, the Greek letters of Caesar, or I'm sorry, Nero Caesar, and then transliterate them into Hebrew using the same Hebrew letters. And in Hebrew, each letter has a number, a corresponding number. And when you put those numbers together uh, from Nero Caesar, actually the Greek is Neron Caesar, the numbering of the letters results in 666. Because Nero represents the power of Rome that was nearly destroyed and yet came back again. Perhaps even more significantly, though, 666 represents a failure to reach 777, the number of perfection and completion for revelation and in Jewish thought, naming the beast ultimately as a parody of all that God offers in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Sibylline Oracles, a Jewish pseudepigraphal work predating the time of Jesus, transliterates Jesus' name. They didn't know who Jesus was. They weren't referring to the historical Jesus. Remember, Jesus' name in Aramaic is Yeshua. 
which is the equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua. God saves. So the Sibylline oracles say, you know, it's interesting. If you transliterate the name Jesus from Greek into Hebrew, just like we did with Caesar Nero, uh, the resulting number is 888. Beyond perfect. Thus, Christians in John's day have a complex relationship with the state. On the one hand, the New Testament says, give your obedience to the state as God's agent for order. Romans chapter 13, we'll just go there briefly. Right? We, this was a popular one during the pandemic. How do we respond to everything that's happening? And Romans 13 was a good place and a right place to go. And it says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul's like, you didn't get it the first time? Let me give it to you a second time. And there'd be a reason for this, because the Jews would be like, we hate the Romans. And Paul would say, well, the Romans are ruling over you, and that's not an accident. God is at work. His goal for you is not to overthrow the Roman power in your life, but to recognize that God has placed it here and to live as his people anyway. He says, consequently, whoever rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. You're rebelling against God. And if you do it, you will get judgment. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. So you have, on the one hand, Paul's statement there. You've got to obey the governing authorities. God's put them there. Do it. But he also adds something for us. He says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. And we know that's not always true, is it? We know that's not always true. And Paul's aware that that's not always true, too. Paul's aware, not least, because he died at the hands of the ruling authorities for being a Christian. He died like Jesus did. So Paul is telling us, hey, as a rule, obey. But there come times when the rules don't work in that way any longer because the state is no longer an agent for our good. And so we obey where we can and everywhere we can because even Jesus did. Remember, I, I love this. Peter has this interaction with the religious leaders and uh, they say, hey, you guys pay the temple tax, right? You and Jesus and everyone else. Peter's like, of course we pay the temple tax. Like, we can't be good Jews without paying the temple tax. I'm offended that you even ask. I might be, you know, paraphrasing a bit. And then Peter goes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, we pay the temple tax, right? <laughs> and Jesus says, well, I don't owe any temple tax because the temple's all about me. Right? God can't pay the temple tax. That doesn't make any sense here. He's not quite so like, explicit as that, but I think this is how we should understand it. The temple's pointing to me. We don't owe a temple tax. But so we will satisfy those people, and so we will satisfy your conscience, and so we will fulfill all righteousness. Peter, go throw your line into the sea, or however he fished in those days, and you, when you pull out a fish, you'll find a coin that's enough for your temple tax and mine. What an amazing thing. Jesus saying, you know, I don't have to do that. I mean, it's, all, it's actually all about me. It's giving money to myself. You know, I, I don't have to do that, but I will. And I think all too often, we look at what the world requires out of us and what the world asks out of us, and we say, I don't have to do that, so I won't. 
And does that help our witness? When we refuse to be a part of society because we say, well, I don't have to. Or, you know, my rights. Don't trample on my rights. Is that helping us witness to Jesus Christ? Is that helping us to maintain a, hey, we are part of this here with you when we intentionally set up those divisions? No, I don't want to do that. See, there are places where we do have freedom to say yes or no. And Paul actually talks about this. He talks about this in the context of our fellowship with each other, where he says, when you go to the marketplace, the meat there has pretty much universally all been previously sacrificed to idols. And some of you, when you go out there and you buy that meat, you feel like, I, I feel guilty. It's like I'm participating in the idol sacrifice. And some of you, when you go out there, you're like, I just need some meat. I'm not participating in that at all because that's not real worship, and I know what real worship is. And Paul says to that second group who, has, who understands the freedom that they have in Christ to eat meat, whether it's been sacrificed or not, he says to those folks, you know what? You are right in your understanding and wrong in your choice. Because when you go and you buy that meat and you eat it at home, the brother with a weak conscience who doesn't understand the difference is saying, they're worshiping idols, so it's okay for me to worship idols as well. And Paul says, how dare you? How dare you do this and keep people away from Jesus and ruin their faith as a result? How do, who do you think you are choosing your knowledge over love? And folks, let me tell you, as a church, maybe not necessarily as the church in Lemon Cove, but as the church worldwide that has not done this well, that has said, what matters more is I get to do what I believe and what I want instead of wherever I can, I will obey the state, offering my obedience, therefore, not primarily to a president or a governor or any of those people, but to Jesus Christ, who told me not to impugn my witness. That brings God glory. That's better than the wisdom and understanding of, well, I don't have to do this, so I won't. I think that's part of our struggle with the beast today. Because the fact of the matter is, is that even though uh, the original audience would have definitely identified the beast from the sea as Nero, and they would have been right to do so, we're seeing a pattern in history in which Satan says to our rulers in one way or another, I will give you my power and authority if you will follow my way. And the way of the dragon is sometimes compelling, isn't it? Because the way of the dragon says, take what you can when it's available. And there are times when we do. There are times when we say, you know, it would be really hard to walk the way of the cross here and say that even though this law benefits me, I understand that it doesn't benefit my neighbor. And so when it comes to my vote, I will vote for the benefit not just of myself, but of my neighbor. And it comes to us as well when it says, well, how will we get our way? I mean, that's the question the dragon asks in the first place. How will I get my way? And notice it's not the question that Jesus ever asked. As a matter of fact, Jesus was fond of asking the opposite when he came to Gethsemane. Remember, just before his death, did he say, Oh, Lord God, I am so glad for what I'm about to experience. Like, I know it's going to glorify you, and I know that we're going to save the world. I know this is going to be great. Like, I mean, it may hurt for a little. I mean, no, Jesus came in and he sweat drops of blood, praying, if there is any other way, Father, 
Let's do it that way. But not as I will, as you will. It's much harder to walk the way of the Lamb. And God's people in the first century understood this. And that's why we get this, this saying, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. It's an acknowledgement, if you walk the way of the Lamb, you may go to captivity. God has not promised to shelter you from that. He hasn't promised to shelter me from that. He says, if you walk the way of the Lamb, you may choose to be killed with the sword. You may choose even a violent death. It may not just come to you. It may be your choice. And I want you to think of the folks in the first century who are standing before the judges. They've been ratted out by their neighbors, especially, I think it was the church in in Sardis. Let me go back and just double check here. No, the church in Smyrna sounds similar. But the church in Smyrna It says this, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Most likely, this was that the Jews in the synagogue were putting the Christians out and saying they worship forbidden gods to the local magistrates, who then hauled them in front of the governor. And the governor would say, you need to sacrifice to the gods or maybe even to Caesar to show that you are a good Roman citizen. And the people there would be faced with, do I betray Jesus Christ or by walking the way of the Lamb? Or not by walking the way of the Lamb. Ooh, that would be bad. Did I betray Jesus Christ by walking the way of the dragon and getting out of it where I could? Or do I be faithful to Jesus Christ and walk the way of the Lamb, choosing the cross even unto death? God is promising us here, I won't protect you from everything in this life. Not in this life. But he also reminds us, who are the people who worship the beast? Verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth, all of them, will walk the way of the dragon, will choose to love the dragon. And who are they? Who are these people who do this? All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, and by the way, he's the Lamb who is slain from the creation of the world. That's the way of the Lamb. So here's the advantage uh, I'm 41 years old. You know, if I live an average life, I've got about, I'm about halfway through my life. I've got 40-ish years left. So let's say I live another 40 years. And let's say I spend those years in prison for walking the way of the Lamb. Or let's say those years are cut short for walking the way of the Lamb. Or let's say I lose my economic security for walking the way of the Lamb. Let's say I've lost anything for walking the way of the Lamb. Yes, into captivity I may go. With a sword I may be killed. And yet my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, who has already been there. He was slain from the creation of the world. And now I have a forever life. I've traded 40 years for uncountable years. And that's a good trade. Uh, very famously, a Christian missionary, why is his name? Jim Elliott uh, said shortly before he was martyred, trying to share his faith, trying to share Jesus with an isolated uh, South American tribe of people who'd never heard about him before. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Christians have a complex relationship with the state. On the one hand, to give their obedience as God as God's agent for order, and on the other, to resist the self-aggrandizing and sweeping claims the state in partnership with the dragon makes for itself. And we're called to be that prophetic voice in the middle of it saying, here is your role. You are accountable to the one true God. You are accountable to the way of Jesus. And though you call us anywhere else, we will not go. We will be faithful to you insofar as we can be. But when we must choose between you and the lamb, we will choose the lamb every time. I'm going to save the second half for next week because I don't think I can do justice to it in about five minutes. So let's hear. How do I conclude since this isn't my, my plan? Well, I think that's pretty good where we've left it. The world will claim our loyalty one way or another, and we will be tempted. Right? This is the same temptation Satan offered to Jesus. Do you want influence and power and authority and riches and wealth and people to recognize you for all of your wonderful traits? Is that what you want? Because Satan will give it to you. Your dragon will give it to you. It's the easiest thing to go along with everyone else, isn't it? To say, that's where I will follow. That's where I will give my loyalty. And the way of the lamb, the way of blood-soaked sweat in the garden of Gethsemane. God, I don't know how we can get there. I don't know if I'll even make it in this life. And yet, I am no fool to give up what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose.